Please bow your hearts with me. Father, once again this morning we draw near to you. And as we quiet our hearts, we do pray for your special grace on us this morning. I do pray that you would put your magnifying glass in every heart here so that we would not focus on those around us, those out there, but that we would focus on our own heart. Lord, this is a text that will expose us, will bring up things in our hearts that are there, that are, we, we are aware of, and I pray that this morning you would give us grace to resolve to live holy lives before you as your people. I do ask you that you would give me grace to take us through this passage of scripture. And most importantly, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work. Nothing that we say, nothing that we do in our own power can have lasting effect, but it is only when you, by your spirit, do your transforming work in our life. And you show us Christ so that as we behold him, we may become like him. Pray for your grace on this time and every person who will listen to this. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Colossians chapter 3. And this morning I want to bring you a message entitled, entitled Killing Sin. John Owen wrote a very helpful book on the subject entitled The Mortification of Sin. Commenting on the text that is before us this morning, this is what he writes. Paul, in speaking to believers, thus challenges the Colossians. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Colossians 3.5. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at this while you are alive. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your position in Christ and the new life that you have in him does not excuse you from this work. What do you think about when you hear a phrase like, always be killing sin or it will be killing you? You might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I thought I was dead already. You see, one of the challenges that we face when we read scripture is that there are these tensions in the Bible that so often we want to resolve. And there are many of them. Just consider the following list. For example, Romans 6.2 says that we are free from sin. And yet 7.19 says that we should not continue to yield to it. 1 Corinthians 1.2 says that we are saints. And yet at the same time, we are sinners. Ephesians 2.14 says that we have peace with God. And yet in Colossians 3.15, we were told to strive for peace. Ephesians 2.8 says you have been saved. And yet at the same time, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, work out your salvation. Matthew 11.28, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And yet in Hebrews chapter 4, we we're told that we need to labor to enter that rest. We are forgiven and yet we have to continue to confess sin. We have died, and yet at the same time, we have to continue to flee from sin. 
We are new, but we are not yet what we will be. We are a new creation, and yet we still battle with the old self. And notice there's tension between these two realities. And some people love to cling to the promises and they forget all the warnings, saying that, okay, I'm all, I'm all this, Jesus has done it all for me, and everything is good. Others look at all the warnings of Scripture. They look at all the commands of Scripture, and they realize that they can never measure up, and so they never can come to this place where they have assurance in God. You add to that some patterns of sin in life, and there's guilt, there's shame, there's doubt. Now, what if this tension should not be resolved in this life? What if God actually intended for it to be so? It's actually not what if, but it is God's intention in our life because if God did not intend this to be so, it would not be. You see, if you're struggling with this tension, if you as a believer are struggling with sin in your life today, then I have a good news for you. And the good news is that God is at work in your life. You see, unbelievers don't struggle with sin. Unbelievers might struggle with consequences of sin. Unbelievers might struggle with some people knowing about certain things that they do, but they love their sin. But as believers, you have been changed, you have been transformed, you have a new nature. And now the fact that you have this struggle, now the fact that you have this tension is indicative of the work of God in your life. And we've been working through Colossians, through the book of Colossians. And in the first two chapters, Paul dealt with identity in Christ. Our identity in Christ. And as far as our identity is concerned, you have died with Christ you rose again, and you are complete in Christ. Since Christ has everything, and Christ indwells you, now you have all that you need for life and godliness. Now, two weeks, we made, two weeks ago, we made this transition from the first two chapters to chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 3, verse 1, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul makes this transition, and he's going to say that your change in your position must also lead to a change in practice. In other words, when you got saved, when you believe, when you were converted, you have a new position, you have new standing. But that new position must result in new practice. Now we saw in the first four verses that he says that as believers, we are now to live with heavenly worldview. We are to evaluate everything from the perspective of heaven. And that's why he says, set your mind on the things above. You have to set your mind on the things above for two reasons. Because you have died to your old life. And because your life is hidden with Christ. And Christ is now in heaven. That's why you live here on earth with the perspective of heaven. But you see, thinking heaven does not end there. When you think heaven, you're supposed to actually live differently here on earth. And that's why in the remainder of this book, Paul gets very, very practical. Specifically in our passage here, that thinking about heavenly things must lead you to put to death some of the earthly things. Now before we look at our verses, which are verses 5 through 11, 
Just consider for the moment the structure of this text. If you look at verses 5 through 11, we'll read them in just a minute. There are three commands in this passage. And the three commands, first one is in verse 5, where Nasby says, Consider the members of your body, earthly body, as dead. If you have ESV, it says, put to death. The second command is in verse 8, where he says, You are to put them all aside. And then there is a third command in verse 9, which says, do not lie to one another. Then in between these three commands, there are two lists of vices that you are to put to death and that you are to get rid of. There's 11 of them total. And then he follows up with three reasons why you should put to death sin in your life. So our goal this morning is to look at the commands that Paul gives here. And then to look at the reasons why you are to obey these commands. Join me as I read. Colossians chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Let's begin by looking at the commands to put away sin. Now as I said, Paul transitions from the first part, from your position to your practice. And the change in your position and perspective must lead to change in practice. You see, the goal of setting your mind on the things above is to transform your life here on earth. Sound theology is useless unless it is applied. Having a lot of information and a lot of good theology in your head without applying it to your life is useless. That's why Paul says in verse 5 when he begins this section, he says, Therefore, therefore, having set your mind on the things above, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I know some of you are reading ESV. And ESV is a little different because ESV says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now in this case, ESV is much closer to the original con- to the original wording because there is actual command not only to just consider, but there is a command to put to death. 
If you were to translate this text literally, it would go something like this. Put to death the members that are upon the earth. Now, Paul is not saying that you are to somehow physically injure yourself so that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Just like Jesus was not literally talking about you gouging out your eye or cutting your hand, that is not what Paul is talking about it. Some in the history have tried to do that, tried to maim themselves so that somehow they will be able to fight their lust or other sins. Paul is not saying that. In fact, in the previous chapter, he just condemned the severe treatment of the body, thinking that you can somehow physically harm yourself so that you will not carry out your lust is not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Paul just said in the previous chapter that all those practices, they are of no value against fighting your fleshly indulgences. In your body, you live in your body. And in your body, you have ability to carry out sin. And that's why in this passage, Paul says, therefore, consider the members of your body as dead to sin. If you're a Christian, and you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know what it's like to battle with sin. You have new nature. You have new desires from God. You desire to live holy. You desire to live a pure life. And yet, at the same time, you still live in this flesh. You still live in this old body. And in your body, in this flesh, you are still able to commit all kinds of sins. All the sins that we're going to talk about this morning, you can do all those sins. As believers, you can commit any sin except blasphemy of the Holy, against the Holy Spirit. Every other sin you are capable of committing. You're able to do that. You still live in the old self. That's why we just read Romans chapter 6 at the beginning of the service. And then Romans chapter 6 verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. What does that say? That says that even as believer, you can have sin reigning in your life. Otherwise, this command would make no sense. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Why? Because if you don't do it, sin is going to reign in your mortal body. But he goes on to say, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body, that is your mind, your eyes, your hands, your feet, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But on the other hand, he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Sin can reign in your body even as a believer. But Paul commands and he says, do not allow that to be the case. On the other hand, he says, instead of you letting sin reign in your mortal body, he says, you present yourself, present your members as instruments of righteousness. That's why when he concludes his theological section and transition to practical section in Romans chapter 12, what is the very first thing he says? Romans chapter 12, therefore I urge you, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present yourself. And then when you present yourself, when you give your members to God as instruments of righteousness, then you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Now, in order for you to kill sin, you have to hate sin. Right? You'll never kill someone that you love. You'll never kill sin if you love sin. Now, how many of us think that, you know, someday it will all come together for us? 
Someday I'm going to live a holy life. I'm going to overcome this thing I've been struggling with for years. And someday, one day, it will just all come together and I'm going to live this pure life. You hope for that. But you know what? It's not going to happen on its own. It's not automatic. You have these commands in Scripture that it's not just you just hope for one day something to happen. No, in our passage, Paul says, today, you must resolve to put sin to death in your life. You must resolve today to live up your life. And you must take certain actions. You must take certain steps in order for that to become reality. If you're just hoping that someday you will grow up, you will mature, and everything's going to be fine, it's not going to happen. It is going to happen only if today you're going to resolve to obey what Paul commands you to obey. And you see, often our problem is that we don't view sin the way God views it. That's my problem. I don't look at sin as something that's just so heinous. You know, God has only one reaction towards sin. Hatred. That's his only reaction. He hates sin. Now, we, on the other hand, sometimes tolerate things and wouldn't see them as sinful as they actually are. And so in order for us to kill sin, first of all, we have to get God's perspective on sin. What does he think about sin? And if you want to know what God thinks about sin, you don't have to go far. All you have to do is just... Look to the cross. Look to the cross where Jesus died. Cross is a demonstration of how much God hates sin. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over because of our sin. In order to redeem us, he has to pour his wrath on sin. And we'll see that in this text. We have to hate sin in order to obey what God commands us to do in this verse. You see, flesh does not die quickly. You can say that it's a slow death. And it doesn't die on its own. The text here, you need to kill it. You are supposed to do it. Now, there are two ways of looking at Paul's command here in verse 5. First of all, he says, put to death the members of your body. Now, since you actually are not going to do that literally, that's why Nasby says, consider the members of your body as dead to sin. When you have a sinful desire, when you have a temptation to do something, he says you're supposed to picture yourself as a corpse that is not able to carry out that desire. Now, I was thinking about how to illustrate this. and I mean, most of you have played relay games at one time or another. When you play a relay game, there are certain games that require you to use only one hand, right? You can't use the other hand. Now, when you're playing that game... You have two hands. Both of them work. Everything is fine. You can, you can use this hand. But according to the rules, this hand is dead. You can't use it. You just have to do it one hand. So you are considering this hand dead for this game. You can only do it for this game with one hand. Now take this illustration and picture. He says, when you are tempted to sin, Paul says, in the life, in Christian life, this race that you are running, this relay race that you're running, your members, you can't use them for sin. They're dead. According to the rules, you cannot employ the members of your body to carry out sin. So when you have a temptation to do something, when you have a sinful desire, when you're struggling, when you're lusting, he says you're supposed to see yourself and according to God's rules, this body cannot be used to carry that out. Now you still have the temptation. You still have the desire. 
It's still there, but the reality is that he says, because you have died, consider the members of your body as dead. Do not use your members to carry out your sinful desires. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Notice what he does not say. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not have the desires of the flesh. Is that what he says? No. You will have desires of the flesh because you still live in the flesh. But if you walk by the Spirit, you will have ability, you will have power to consider your members as dead to sin. You will have power over yourself to say, no, no, I ain't playing this game. I will not use my members to carry out that sin. Now, physically, you absolutely can do it. You have all the power, you have physical faculties to carry out that sin. But he says, because you understand your position, you don't carry them out. When you have a temptation, you will respond negatively to the desires that you have. The second way to look at this command is that the members of your body, when Paul says put to death the members of your body, it just stands in for the sins that he lists. Because as you look down verse 5 and verse 8, he gives this long list. There are at least 11 things that he says you are to put to death. So Paul could be saying that you are to put to death the members, or more specifically, you are to put to death the sins that your members are carrying out. Paul is actually commanding you to kill sin. And we see that because he gives this catalog of lists or vices in our passage here. Since you are new in Christ, since you are new creation, you are to eradicate sin, whatever is found. Now, before we look at the actual list that he gives here, I just want to briefly answer one question that Paul doesn't answer here. Paul gives a command, kill sin. But he doesn't tell you exactly how you're supposed to kill sin. So practically speaking, we have to ask this question. If I am commanded to kill sin in my life, if I am commanded to put away sin, how am I supposed to do that? Many people try different things. We saw in chapter 2 that there are people who said, do this, and that will help you be more godly. Do that, and you'll do this. You know, we can read stories about monks who make vows, who follow fastings, penance, you know, wear rough garments, live, you know, horrible lives, if you will, in order to somehow tame their flesh. Paul says that's not going to work. Now, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. In Romans chapter 8... Verse 13, Paul says this. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice parallel here. He's talking about putting to death, death the deeds of the body. Question for you. Who kills sin? Holy Spirit or you? The answer is yes. Because Paul gives command to believers. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You are putting to death the deeds of the body. But how you do it, he says, you are doing it by the Spirit. So the question is, how do we, by the Spirit... Put to death the deeds of the body. Now go up just a little bit to verse 5 in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, because Paul gives us a clue there. 
In Romans 8, 5, he says, for those who are according to the flesh, what do they do? They set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit are the things of the spirit. Now notice the parallels between this passage and the passage in Colossians. He says, those who walk according to the flesh, this is where their mind is. They set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who walk by the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. So we have to ask the question, what are the things of the spirit? So in order for you to live by the spirit, in order for you to walk by the spirit, you have to set your mind on the things of the spirit. Now, the same phrase is used once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 2, verse 14, where it says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. For he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. What are the things of the Spirit? The things of the Spirit is this. This is what the Spirit has left for us. The Spirit has inspired the authors to record for us all that we need for life. And so when he says those who walk according to the Spirit are the ones who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, this must so fill your mind when you are tempted with sin rather than looking at how pleasant that thing will be for just a moment. You are able to look at this, focus your mind on this, and in that moment of temptation, you choose to believe this rather than whatever your flesh or the devil or the world is offering to you. The things of the Spirit are the words of God. Fill yourself with the truth of God. When you are tempted to lust, look at what the scripture says. And in that moment, bring those truths to mind. And that is the tool that the spirit will use to put to death sin in your life. There is no other weapon. There is no other tool that can put to death sin. It is only the spirit of God through the word of God affecting your mind that will enable you to eradicate sin from your life. You will continue to struggle with sin. You will fall until the day you die. But the progress is only made when you fill your mind with the truth of God and fight the temptation to sin with the word of God. Now, a companion to that is you have to starve sin. The way sin dies is when you fight it with the word of God and when you starve it. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, or 13 and 14, He says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he adds this, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. In other words, cut the oxygen. Cut the oxygen. When you cut the oxygen, the thing dies. When you don't feed your lust, when you don't feed your sin, it dies. So in the moment of temptation, you set your mind on the promises of God, and by faith and prayer, you look to God to help you overcome that sin, and at the same time, you starve sin out. You know when you're tempted. You know the things that tempt you. You know where you fall. He says, cut those things out from you. Make no provision. Don't put yourself in the places where you are tempted. Get rid of those things from your life so that you starve sin. And at the same time, you apply by the Spirit the Word of God. And you choose to believe God rather than your sin. Now, the first command is to put to death sin. The second command is in verse 8. 
He says, but now you also put them all aside. Now he changes the metaphor here a little bit. On the one hand, you are to kill it. In this case, he says, you are to put them all aside. Literally, you are to take it off. I mean, this picture of undressing and dressing is often used in Scripture, or Paul loves to use this. Put some things off and put some things on. In other words, he's saying that when you were unconverted, there was a certain clothes that you wore before that. Now that you are saved, God has taken that, those robes, those dirty, unclean clothes, and he has taken them off you. He's given you new clothes. And now that you are saved, don't go back and put on the old stuff that God has taken off from you. Put them all aside. Put them off. Leave them there. Don't go back to those because they characterize your old life. This is not who you are anymore. That's why in verse 12, he's going to tell you, but now put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and so on. You've taken off a certain clothing as an unbeliever. You've put on something new, and now you continue to daily put those things on and do not go back to your former ways of life. Then Paul proceeds to give us this, these two lists. Two lists of sin that you are to kill and that you are to put aside. Each list has five sins in them. And then one more gets a special attention in verse 9. So there's a total of 11 of them. Let's run quickly through them all. The point is not to talk about every single one of them because you can preach a sermon on every sin and this, the list here is not exhaustive. It's not saying that, well, as long as you get rid of these 11 things from your life, you're good to go. No, this is just representative list. And as you read this list, I mean, don't just think of people out there, those sinners out there. But see where these things find their place in your heart. How do these sins manifest themselves in your life? Because Paul is commending believers to get rid of these things from their life. And he assumes that we have some of them. We have. First, he says, immorality. Immorality, porneia. That's where we get the word pornography. Denotes any illicit sexual conduct, which includes fornication, adultery. We can say that this word covers every kind of unlawful sexual behavior. Now, just consider Paul's audience. I mean, these are pagans who have been converted from their pagan lifestyles. Many, if not most of them, were engaged in these things. Many of these practices were associated with their worship before their conversion. And now Paul says, put them all aside. Put them all aside. Put them to death. And of all the things that Paul could have started with, he starts with this one. Immorality. It's the most appealing to the flesh. It promises pleasure for a season it's one of the hardest to break with. But you know, the Bible is very clear on immorality. The Bible is very clear on sexual sins that Paul talks about here. There's only one person you can have an intimate relationship with, and that is your spouse. Everyone else is off limits, both in your mind and in your actions. There's only one person, and everything else is under this word, porneia. One of the most explicit passages on this is the one that we studied earlier in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul says, this is the will of God. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. You don't have to wonder what God wants from you on this subject. This is the will of God. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. Specifically, that, each, that you abstain 
And the very first thing he says, from sexual immorality. Now again, we're not talking about people out there who engage in all kinds of weird things, immoral things. But it's us here. Yeah, maybe outwardly we all do these things. But if you examine your heart, how many of those things do you find there? And Paul says if you're struggling with this, and you are. If you're tempted to do some of these things, and you are. Paul says you are to put it all to death. Put it aside. Not only morality, he says impurity. Impurity is a more general word than that and covers a lot more than just sexual sin. It goes beyond the act to your thoughts and your intentions. Jesus used this word for uncleanness. And we talked about dead bodies. In Matthew 23, 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones. And in this word, and uncleanness. Besides this use, it's used 10 other times, and every other time it refers to sexual sin. Impurity is also mentioned in the list of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. Again, put this to death. Third, he says passions. Passions, again, appears three times in the New Testament, and every single time it refers to sexual sins. In Romans 1.26, it says, for the... For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. And then he goes on to talk about lesbians, homosexuals. Degrading passions. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 4 and 5, he says that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. It is this inward desire, this inward drive that will not rest until it is satisfied or killed. Number four, evil desires. Evil desires. We all have desires. Desires could be good or desires could be bad, depending on the legitimacy of the object desired. And in this case, obviously, we're talking about something that is sinful. In this context, he's talking about sexual sin, and you have evil desire for that. Perhaps a mental side of the previous one that he mentioned, of your passion. And the final one in this first list is greed. Greed. You might think, well, how does greed fit into this list? And you could say that Paul, he goes out from the external act, and he drills down all the way to your heart. Because everything in this list that works itself out in porneia, the final form of that, it comes from your heart. From your heart of greed. He says in greed, what is greed? Greed is an intense selfish desire for something. It's this itch to get your hands on something that someone else have. Literally means to have more. I am not content with what I have. I am not content with what God has given to me. And I want more. Paul used this word in the same context in 1 Thessalonians 4, the passage that we were reading. He says that each one of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he adds this, and that no man transgress and defraud, that's that word, defraud his brother in this manner. Now to be greedy is to want what someone else has. It's a violation of the 10th commandment. 
Ten Commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Anytime you hear someone says that we should take from these people and give it to these people, because they have a lot and these people don't have nothing, that's violation of this. This is greed. When you just really look at someone who has something and you say, I want it, and you don't want to work for it, you just want to take it from somebody, that's violation of this. It's greed. You want to take something that someone has and you're not content with the lot that you have in this life. And then Paul adds, all of this, or greed, it amounts to idolatry. It all boils down to idolatry. Why? Because you worship yourself and you worship your desires rather than worshiping God. I want this thing so much that I am willing to sin, I am willing to break God's law. I'm worshiping me. It's not about God. That's what I said. It amounts to idolatry. Now, we think of idolaters as people who bow down to statues, who recite some kind of weird, you know. No. Idolatry is closer to home than we might think. Idolatry is right here. He says every time you go and you fulfill your lust, you fulfill your sexual desire, not the way God has given you, you are an idolater. There is idolatry in your heart. And it's interesting to trace through the Bible that so often idolatry is associated with sexual sin. Very often. I mean, one of the biggest examples of that is Numbers 25. You remember Numbers 25? Balaam instructed the Moabites to send their woman to seduce the men so that they would fall. And when the people of God fall into sexual sin, then you don't have to defeat them because God will destroy them. That's what happened in Numbers 25. While Israel remained in Shittim, the people began to play harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal Peor. And the Lord was angry against Israel. Result, 24,000 dead. Same idolatry that was then is here today. And it is closer to our heart, even though it might masquerade itself differently. But you know, God's response is always the same. He hated sin back then as much as he hates it today. And he hates it today just as much as he hated it then. Now, as we continue to examine the list, skip down to verse 8. We'll come back to the verses above. Now, the first list dealt with your outward sins or your outward expressions that are traced to your heart and specifically dealing with sexual sin. In this list, in verse 8, Paul begins with the heart and he works his way on the outside. First he says anger. Anger is the same word that will be used, that is used in verse 6 for the wrath of God. Now anger is not always sinful because God gets angry at the right things. There is Right anger and then there is wrong anger. And obviously in this case, Paul's talking about the wrong anger. This is not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about you getting righteously angry at sin as God does. Anger is a strong feeling or displeasure or hostility caused by a real or perceived offense. Or maybe injury or unmet desires of oneself or others. And it's usually accompanied by a desire for revenge. People in circumstances don't make us angry. They reveal our anger. If there's anger in the heart, then 
things on the outside were merely triggered. James 1.19 says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Means you recognize that much of our anger is sinful? Means you identify the things, those idolatrous things in our heart that cause us to be angry? Somebody compared an angry person with a simmering pot that just stands there and simmers on the stove. And as soon as you just turn up the heat just a little bit, boils over. An angry person is just like that. And there's little things on the outside that will just trigger it. And that's where you have the next one comes here. After anger, he says it's wrath. Wrath. Anger is internal attitude. Wrath is an external expression of that attitude. Anger leads to wrath. Again, Galatians chapter 5, this is one of those deeds of the flesh. Your anger lashes out and you demonstrate your wrath on people around you. Number eight, he says malice. Malice, again, just the general word for evil. Anger and wrath lead you to do evil to others around you. You see, sin cannot stay long on the inside. It will make itself out one way or another. Number nine, slander. Slander. You know this word. It's the word blasphemy. When it is used towards God, it's called translated as blasphemy. When it refers to you speaking to other men, it's translated as slander. To slander someone is to defame them, to destroy their reputation, to make false statements about them, to spread rumors about them, to talk behind their back. And that is one of those expressions of evil. And that's what happens in the world. That's how people live. You elevate yourself by making someone else look bad. Paul says, you're a believer. You have a different age. You're a different person. These things are not to be so in your life. You ought not to act this way. You are to put this to death. Slander. Abusive speech. Vulgar. Dirty. Shameful speech. Obscene and derogatory speech that is intended to hurt someone or wound someone. And notice the progression. There is anger that leads to wrath, that causes you to do evil. Then you slander that person. Then you talk dirty. And he says, I mean, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul said the same thing. He says, there must, not be, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. You see... What comes from your mouth reveals your heart. And that's what Paul says, if you are truly saved, if your heart has been transformed, these things are not to be named among you. These things are not to come from your heart. And finally, 11, which gets his special attention in verse 9, is lying. Lying. Now, lying just could have been added to this list, previous list, but Paul gives it special attention with this imperative in verse 9. You could translate it, stop lying to one another. Now, lying can take many different forms. You can just tell deliberate untruth. Or maybe you could just create a wrong impression in someone by just giving them partial truth. Maybe you can just distort the facts a little bit by just exaggerating. 
And the Bible is clear. It condemns lying in all forms. Now, while today lying does not seem like a big deal, and, you know, there are these you know, horrible sins, but then lying, you know. But in the Bible, actually, lying is often put in the list of most heinous sins. Think about Revelation 21. Revelation 21, 8. It's the very end. And you read this, but for the cowardly and unbelievable and abominable and murderers and the moral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and no liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I mean, God takes this very seriously. In fact, there isn't sin that God doesn't take seriously. There aren't those little things that God really doesn't care about. And like I said, this list is not exhaustive, but it is just representative of all kinds of vices. He says, look into your heart as believers. Examine your heart. And the point of this list is sufficient. Kill every sin in your heart. Kill every sin in your life. Make no provision for your flesh to carry out those sins. Now again, you know where you're tempted. You know the things that you struggle with. You know the things that you ought to put to death. And Paul says, this is what you ought to do. This, is must, this must be your commitment. Now you can't do that. Why? Because you are a new creation. Feed your soul with the truth of God's word. Fill your mind with the truth and at the same time starve your sin so that it has no power in your life. In case you're not convinced that you ought to kill sin in your life, Paul gives three reasons why you should put away sin. Reason number one, God hates it. God hates it. Look at verse six. For it is because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. You must kill sin in your life because God hates it and God judges it. Now, God's holiness demands a response to sin. You know, the question is this. As believers, why would we engage in something that brings down the wrath of God? It just says here in verse 6. You engage in these things, these things bring down the wrath of God. Now, if you are a believer, why would you go and participate in something that God says, I will judge? Now, it's not just the future wrath of God that is coming one day upon the sons of disobedience. It is something that we see even today. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, we read, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Even today, when people are suffering in their sins, that is a demonstration of the wrath of God. Wrath of God is coming on people who participate in sin. Sin never brings blessing for believers or for unbelievers. Now notice that the objects of God's wrath here are the sons of disobedience. It says the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. 
John 3.36 says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not believe in the Son, does not obey the Son, will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Now because we are in Christ, the wrath that was due to you and me was poured on Christ. God does not pour down his wrath on believers. But God disciplines believers when they sin. God cares about sin in the life of a believer as much as he cares about sin in the life of unbeliever, or perhaps even more. Unbelievers live out their nature when they're sinning. Believers have a new nature. Believers say that, say that we are subjects to God. And so when believers engage in sin, God hates sin just as much as he hates sin in the lives of unbelievers. Again, the question that I ask, why would you as a believer engage in something that God hates? Now before our conversion, we were children of wrath. Ephesians 2.3 says we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. But now we're no longer children of wrath. We're no longer sons of disobedience. We've been adopted into God's family. We've been made his children. And for us, it's Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you reprove by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Again, you want to know how much God hates sin? Look at Jesus. Look at his suffering. Look at his death. Look at the cross. God did not spare his son so that we would be forgiven of the sin that even as believers we sometimes enjoy. At the same time, we need to be reminded of the gospel. That it's not just by our performance, it's not just by our doing that we are going to live this, these holy lives. Because I, I, I can tell you right now that you're going to sin. You're going to sin this week. No matter how hard you try, you will stumble and you will fall. And you know what? When we sin, the temptation that you will have, the devil will come to you and they say, God doesn't accept you anymore. I mean, how many times can you sin? How many times can you do the same thing over again? You've out God's grace. Nonsense. You've been adopted into God's family, and God is not done with you. When we sin, it is an opportunity to run to God, not to run from God. Never believe this lie that God has kicked you out. Never. If you're a child of God, no matter what you've done, no matter how long you've been rebelling, you run back to God. Why? Because ultimately you're saved by the gospel. You're saved by grace. Your standing is guaranteed by the work of Christ, not by what you've done yesterday. You are, your standing is secured in Christ. And when you stumble and when you fall, you run back to God. God disciplines his children. Why? To bring them back to himself. That's why he does it. As believers, we don't engage in sin because God hates it. Number two, because the old self is dead. The old self is dead. Look at verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another. Why? Since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, we already seen this in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Literally, you have taken off your old man. You have taken off that old cloth that you have. Old man, 
refers to your unconverted nature and that it is inherited from Adam. Now notice how Paul asserts. He says this is a fact. This has happened at the moment of your conversion. When you were converted, the old man died and the new man was made alive. The old man is no longer on the throne. You are no longer subject to sin. You are no longer under the power of sin. And notice that the old man died with his practices. Verse 7 says, in them you once walked when you were living in them. That's how your life was characterized before your conversion. You've lived in all these things. You've engaged in all these things. He says, you've practiced this. But when the old man died, the old man died with all of his practices. Now, though you are a new man on the inside, you still can sin. You still are able to sin. But now something is new. You have power not to sin. When we fall into sin, it's not because we did not have opportunity not to sin. We are new in Christ. We have power not to sin when we rely on the Spirit of God. Remember, when you're running a Christian, a Christian race, your body, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mind, they're dead towards sin. You cannot employ them in carrying out those desires. Finally, the reason why you put sin to death is because the new self is alive. New self is alive, verse 10 says, and you have put on the new self. Again, it's, a, it's done. You've put on a new self, something that has happened when you were saved. And then there's this ongoing process, and this new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. The new man is contrasted with the old man. Now this is not a reformed old man. This is not an old man who has been trained few new tricks. No, the old man has died. Positionally, you are a new man. But when you're saved, you are a new man, but you're not a mature man. And that's why Paul talks about this continual renewal, your progressive sanctification. As, you, as your knowledge of Christ grows, as you behold Christ in your Christian life, you are becoming mature. You are becoming more and more like Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, What we all with unveiled faces, beholding us in the mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. As you behold Christ, you become like Christ. And he adds in 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now this new self lives a new life. This new self lives in a community, as Paul says in verse 11, where the old distinctions have been erased. Notice, there are a number of contrasts that he paints here. There are distinctions here. There is national distinctions, religious distinctions, cultural distinctions, social distinctions. First he says... And with this new man, there's no Greek or Jew. Now you know, I mean, again, you have to put yourself in the context when this was written. This is the first church. This is the first time ever 
in the history of the world when the Jews and the Gentiles were brought together in one body and were equal to one another. First time ever. These groups that had hostility for thousands of years brought together. And he says, because in the gospel, because of your identities in Christ, God takes two groups that can't stand each other. And he brings them together. Is this relevant today? Well, turn on your news. I mean, racial tensions. Black, white, anywhere in between can stand each other. There's only one way to reconcile those. He says, if your identity is in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're black, white, or any shade in between. It doesn't matter in the gospel. You have the same standing. Guess what? In Christ, none of those things matter. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Again, another reference to those groups. Circumcised Jews elevated that. And looked down at all the Gentiles, all these uncircumcised people, the second class. Paul says, no. In Christ, don't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised, whether you're uncircumcised, because you're one. You're the same. Barbarian or Scythian. If Jews look down at the Gentiles and say, oh, look at these uncircumcised people. I mean, Gentiles looked at others and said, oh, barbarian. Barbarian is just anyone who is ignorant of Greek culture and language. Scythian is the lowest form of that. These were invaders who came from Black Sea and Caspian Sea from that region. Southern Russia. Interesting. NLT translates this as uncivilized. He says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. It doesn't matter what culture you come from, how educated or uneducated you are. And he adds this, slave or free man. Again, the context tells us that this was a huge part of that world today. And you can imagine that you have a church where you have all these groups. You have circumcised Jew. You have uncircumcised Gentile. You have barbarians. You have these lowest of the low people. You have slaves and you have free. And they all come together and they worship one God. Why? Because their identity is in Christ. Now without the gospel, you could not have imagined that to be the case. That could not have happened without the gospel. And if anything divides people, you can only bring them together in one thing. It is the gospel. Why? Because the ground is level at the cross. When you come to the cross, you acknowledge that you are no one and you are nothing. And nothing that you have and nothing that you are counts for nothing. You're nobody. And when you come to the cross, you receive identity of Christ. And when you have identity of Christ, he says, in this new life, when you have these new men, they're equal. They're all recipients of grace. Therefore, don't divide over your social status, over your race, or anything else. He has this in verse 11. Why? There's no distinction. Because Christ is all and in all. It's all about Christ. It's whether you have Christ or you don't have Christ. If you have Christ, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. If your identity is in Christ, you have new nature. 
that enables you to kill sin in your life. I begin with a quote from John Owen. I want to finish with one as well. And this he compares sin that you are killing with a person who is being crucified. He says this, when a man is nailed to the cross, he at first struggles, strives, and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. He cries low and hoarse and scarce to be heard. So when a man first determines to conquer a lust or sin and to deal with it with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved by mortification, the blood and spirits of it are let out. It moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard. It may sometimes have a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over especially if it is kept from considerable success. You know, the battle with sin is hard, but it is worth it. Killing sin is not an option. It's a responsibility. And there's victory. There's victory there because of who you are in Christ. So as you ponder these verses, don't hope for the day when you will be victorious sometime in the future. But resolve today to obey the commands that Paul gives in this text. Fight sin in your life as if your life depended on it. Because it actually does. In Christ, we can and must live victorious life. And we have all that we need to do that. May God grace us to obey this. Father, I thank you for these words. And I just pray that we would have that resolve in our heart to love what you love and to hate what you hate and do all that we can to put it out of our life. In the name of Jesus, amen.